Hello and welcome to the 13th episode of TPWTP. That's the podcast with Tom Polos. We have an amazing program for you guys today. Veteran Hollywood writer and producer Rob Long joins me, as does the cast and director of Brilliant Traces. Also, a guy from my apartment complex claims he's going to drop by. I'll believe it when I see it. Hopefully you guys will hear it. You're listening to the podcast with Tom Polos, a.k.a. TPWTP. All right, welcome back to TPUTP. I'm here in studio with right. with that's Rob good. Long, uh, who shares nice, nice lingo. That's right. You know, this is entertainment speak, um, and Rob shares his views about the politics of Hollywood and the politics of Washington D.C. across a number of forums. You can find his works on National Review, Newsweek International, the Los Angeles Times, and more. And Mr. Long's weekly commentary, Martini Shot, is broadcast on KCRW in Los Angeles. It can be found on iTunes if you ever do get tired of TPUTP. Right, right, right. I don't know why would you? Why would you? That's right. um, Rob is also the editor in chief of the center right ricochet.com. But if you want him in hardcover, and again, why wouldn't you buy his books? Conversations with my agent and set up joke, set up joke. Rob, welcome well, to the thank, show. Thank you for having me. Of course. So, if we could, let's start with Hollywood and go from there. You had immense success at a very early age with a little show called Cheers. Yeah. A little web series called yeah, Cheers. Little, uh, yeah, web episodes. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, now you're finding success with Sullivan and Son, which returns to TBS this June. How would you say, in your vision, the world of television has evolved since 1993 to 2013? Well, it's like, uh, I don't know, evolved isn't really the word. Devolved is probably better. I mean, it's, better, it's much better for the audience, right? If, you're, if, you're, if you want to watch great television, you have a much better shot at it now. Um, you know, just more choice, right? 900 channels. Now, you know, 800 of them were terrible, and they got Real Housewives on them, but they also have Breaking Bad and Good Stuff and Very Funny Comedies. And, you know, when I started, there were three, there were four networks, barely. I started in 1990. And um, there were basically three networks, and then uh, Fox had The Simpsons. And that was great, but that was considered wild. Like, it's crazy. The Simpsons, you know, it's incredibly transgressive. Um, and you know if you're you're watching TV, you kind of had a choice. It was a cop show, something from something on the news. Like Thursday, our, our show Cheers was on Thursdays at nine. Must see TV. Must see TV. It was before the really before must see TV. Um, Thursdays at nine. And if you wanted to watch a comedy, you watched Cheers. If you wanted didn't like comedies, you could watch a cop show, which like I think it was Simon Simon one year, and some other cop show. And it was I think there was a hospital drama on opposite us too. And then ABC, it was CBS, and ABC. They just punted. They just we're not, we don't have anything. So they they ran a new show called Primetime Live, um, on Thursdays at night, and that was it. That's what you got. Uh, and so we were the number one show in the nation. We got we got what a, what a thirty share or something every week, which is you know thirty percent of all TVs on were tuned to us, which is about thirty million TVs at the time, about thirty million people. Um, and that was considered you know that was good. That was like number one show, top five show at least. Um, now that would be my God! If you got that every day, every week, it, it would just be—it's—it's uh, it's unfathomable. I mean, even a major, major hit doesn't get that because uh, the audience is everywhere. The audience is all—you know—watching stuff online. They're playing video games. They're on Facebook. They're somewhere else in the 900 channel universe. They're—they're—they're they're, they're time shifting. They got the DVR working. So now we got to work really, really hard. I mean, in the old days, is this? It, I would say it this way: in the old days, the, the well, here's a story I always tell. Um, there's a show on, I guess i got to do this for your demographic, there used to be a show on TV called Webster about a little African-American kid who was adopted by a rich white couple. 
back there's a time when people thought that you could do that show and and it wasn't offensive but okay show was on it was perfectly serviceable a little comedy you know and uh, it was on for a bunch of years nobody really cared about it and uh, at one point they assigned the network assigned a new network executive to um, to kind of uh, uh, supervise the show and she shows up and no one had ever showed up like in the past couple of years no one had bothered to come to the table reading of the show for the network just, this thing just ran yeah. and um, after table reading she's got some notes and they all kind of look at each other like oh my god what what, what What's going on here? And so they call the studio president down, and they say, "There's a lady here from the network, and she's got notes on a Webster." And he comes running down, and kind of looks at her like, you know, she's the newbie. And uh, he says, "What are you doing here?" And she's like, "I got some notes." And he goes, uh, "Let me stop you right there. We think it works." <laughs> and she says, "Well, I'm trying to make a good Webster here." And he goes, "Let me stop you right there. There's no such thing as a good Webster. Right? <laughs> There's no good Websters." They're no bad Websters. They're just Websters. And that was really the goal of television. I was like, we're not really, we're just trying to keep the eyeballs we got, because we got 30 million of them, right? Right, D right? Dividing up the nation into thirds, basically. And uh, we're fighting over that, we're like the big three, Chrysler, GM, and Ford. And that's the competition. We're all gonna get rich. We're just trying to keep the people we got. Um, and now it's the opposite. Now we're not fighting over keeping what we got. We're just trying to get something. and that because competition works, uh, has made television much, much, much better. It's also made it much, much worse, right? There's much, much right. bigger, much more crap on TV that's offensive and awful, but there's also much more stuff on TV that's really fantastic. It's so would you consider this more of a golden age in totally, that time? Totally, totally. I mean, it's not the golden age for money. I mean, if you ask anybody who's in the TV business now, like, oh my God, you got to scramble and fight, and you, know, you got to make good Websters, that's the problem. <laughs> uh, but but in the old days, um, yeah, everybody got paid more, but but now, if you if you the, the people who win now are the is the consumer, right? Because you could watch Mad Men or Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad or um, you know Big Bang Theory or, or Sullivan and Son or whatever it is you like. Especially Sullivan and Son. Whatever it is that makes you laugh or get, grabs you, you got a choice. Now, as a content creator, what do you make of new media and new technologies? Are you a fan of it as far as a consumer, or do you also like it as the person behind the work? Well, I'm a fan of it as a consumer. Um, because I like to do that. I like to watch uh, Game of Thrones and Mad, Mad Men and Breaking Bad on my iPad, on airplanes. Um, it's problematic if you're the content creator because our whole business model is based on scarcity, right? You sit, you watch when I tell you to watch because that, well, that's how I control the money, right? Uh, and if you can just do that any time, then how do I make any money at this? Um, but we'll figure it out. I mean, there's, there's, there's some rocky roads ahead. There's, some, there's going to be some tough years in the business ahead. Um, but, you know, no one's going to starve. Uh, but there can be some tough years. We, we all have to figure out how to make some money. How, 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 not make some money. More like the whole business runs on the venture capital model, which is that we throw money at everything. We try a million different things, and a lot of them fail. And then one hit showers everything else with money and pays for all the failures. And that's produced some really great stuff. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to happen what's happening now in the feature film business where no one's taking any risks at all, where they're not making as many movies as they, as they used to make, and the movies they're making are basically Iron Man 9. Um, those are good movies, but that's all they're making. So mm -hmm. this is kind of like, eh. it's It's their Webster. Why would they exactly right. It? Why would I change it? Like, yeah. I'm not trying to, like, why? I just want to make it louder and more explosions. And I, I, look, I love those movies, but there's something sad about what's happening. 
And you don't want to do that for TV because TV is all about choice and, and, and variety. Do you like what companies like Netflix have done with the with their streaming or their instant shows that you can download a whole new season all at once? Do you like that? Or? I think it's fantastic. Look, anytime someone enters this business and is willing to invest real money in good material with, 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 with real people and real scripts, right, uh, that is a great moment for all of us. I mean, what, what, what Netflix is doing, what Amazon is doing, and I also love their model. I mean, the Amazon model is really simple. Like, we want you to come to Amazon and stream entertainment. And while you're here, you can buy your toothpaste. That's, that's brilliant, right? Then, then they're not worried about like advertising toothpaste. They have toothpaste for sale. And so while you're watching it, oh man, I gotta buy light bulbs. Well, you can buy everything at Amazon, everything. So you can just be watching a show and in the middle of it, think, oh, my, oh we, got, we gotta get cornflakes. Well, let's order them. Because if we order them now, I'll get them in 36 hours. The UPS guy will bring me my cornflakes. I mean, I'm, maybe that's just me. I order everything. So, I, mean, I order everything from Amazon. I haven't gone to a drugstore in years. They haven't changed as far as I can no, tell. No, they haven't changed. Don't worry. Um, but things have changed in your time, as we alluded to, in Hollywood. And there are obviously some inherent ups and downs to the entertainment industry. Some very high highs, some very low lows. Right. Um, two questions. One is, do you remember a time that was particularly trying in your path out here and a moment where you were like man this maybe maybe I want to try something else and on that same follow-up what advice would you give to young Rob Long as he leaves Yale UCLA and over even what advice would you give to him <laughs> yeah I, you know take an economics class is what I would have said in college <laughs> uh, be a business investment banker there's more more money in it which I wanted to be when I left college by the way um, uh, I don't look. I mean, look. I think if you're not, look. If you're in show business and you don't think every morning I gotta get to get out of this, um, then you're not really paying attention. And if you do material, if you do stuff and you do it in front of an audience and you write for an audience and you don't think every time the audience is loaded into the into the stage, or every time every night a show of yours is airing or premiering, and and, and early mo early the next morning when you're hitting refresh to try to get those um, uh, ratings. Um, and that's what I do now. In the old days, um, you know, we, I stood by the fax machine and waited for the fax to come from, from at five in the morning from, from, from some intern in New York. What a pleasant way to wake up. Oh, yeah. I, we stood by that. And, and some intern in New York would do it. And then um, uh, and, and they also had a, a call-in line. And you'd call in to this line um, at five in the morning, 5.30 in the morning in, on the West Coast. And then some intern in New York with a very heavy sort of Brooklyn accent had gotten up early, gotten the numbers, and, and read them to an answering machine, you call and get it. And, um, and, and you, it was, for some reason, no matter what network you were on, ABC, the ABC ratings line was always earliest. For some reason, that intern got up early. And uh, so you'd call that number, even if you were on, a, on CBS. So you'd have to recalibrate all the numbers. Right. Because they put all their ABC, their ABC shows first. Um, so every morning, yeah, you want to quit. Um, and every, every time you get the number, you want to quit. And every time the network or the studio says something stupid, you want to quit. Um, that sounds often. Yeah, it's often. Um, but but that's, the, that's the fun of it. I mean, the fun of it is that, look, if it was easy, it, it wouldn't be good. You know, part of the, fric the friction is what makes it, you know, makes you work harder. And um, in part of writing comedy, like comedy is this weird thing where you're successful if you make someone laugh. And making someone laugh is really this aggressive thing where you alter the way they breathe, right? 
you involuntarily make them breathe differently. Like they, their, their lungs behave in a different way because you made them do that. That's like very close to choking somebody, right? To death, right? So you obviously have some weird problem in your life that you're trying to get out by trying to make a bunch of people choke to death. And so you're not normal to begin with, which is okay because you channeled into this thing. And, um, and if you don't have a love-hate relationship with it, I think you're probably not suited for it. So you're talking about making people laugh, making people involuntarily choke, which sounds a lot like my everyday existence. Mm -hmm. um, now, as a comedy writer, Rob, with your books, with your commentary, with your TV shows, what makes you laugh? Well, I mean, no. You, you also, you love to laugh. That's what. That's why you want to do it. I mean, I. I mean, I. I'm trying to think of like what the stuff that makes me laugh now. I'm. I have sort of normal tastes, you know. I mean, I, I like. I like these. I, I like the old comedies. Uh, I like the old-fashioned comedies I see on TV. I love uh, the CBS lineup. I think was very funny. Big Bang Theory. Oh, I thought you meant like Buster Keaton. Oh yeah, I like the those old two. Line. Um, <laughs> the old lineup. The old, old lineup. That's that's the old stuff. Um, I still can. You know, I'll still stop and watch a Honeymooners if it's on. Um, I don't think there's anything funnier than Gene Wilder in Young Frankenstein, um, or pretty much anything. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I mean, I'll laugh at anything. I don't really, I don't like clever as much. Sometimes that's the stuff that that people, um, the, the the stuff that's like a funny idea. I'm not crazy about because I don't know where am I supposed to laugh at that. I'm not. Sometimes that stuff is not designed to make me laugh. It's designed to make me think the person who did it is smart or hip or knows what Instagram is. Right. And that, I think, I mean, I hate this now. I sound like a really old man. <laughs> but I'd like to go. There are some writer's rooms for some shows on the air right now. And I'd like to go and just kick their and like say, no, stop. You have to pitch a joke here. You can't just pitch a reference to something that's contemporary. Mm -hmm. It has to be a joke with a setup and a punchline. And then, and then an actual laugh. It can't just be a funny little, ha, huh, quirky little statement that she made about her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. It's got to be a joke. Or um, you tell them to paint the set or something. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Right. That's, uh, that's an old-fashioned thing. I heard a guy do that, too. <laughs> um, well, let's go from what makes you laugh to what makes you cry. If we could talk about the state of politics right now, and perhaps the state of the Republican Party. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's go yeah. back to just November yeah. for now, and then we'll work forward, because obviously some things have evolved. Yeah, uh, not really. We're, maybe, who knows? <laughs> We're dancing in circles yeah. here. Uh, what happened in November, and what needs to happen for it to go right? Emphasis on right. Well, I don't know. I don't know what right means, really. I mean, I, I think what happened in November was that the party, the Republican Party, um, stopped talking to uh, uh, the big, broad American people. That you know, the Republican Party convinced itself that the fact that nobody voted for it in 2008 and, and, and the fact that people were moving away from it on the, their big social issues in 2010 even and, and, and all indications of 2012 was a sign that it was on the right track, right? Which is weird, but they did that. Um, and, and they didn't, they don't really look at party building, the, the American politics in terms of the, the party building. And the Democrats were very smart, or at least they, they, they blundered into a strategy in 1964, which is to become a national party that kind of embraced a lot of different things, none of which, none of those things necessarily were compatible. I mean, the number of conservative Democrats in the Democratic Party for 30 years was huge. And they were, they didn't have this progressive agenda. Conservative, Dem Southern Democrats, especially, but conservative Democrats uh, were 
support were socially conservative and you know low tax, pro business. They were like you know get along, go along. They're basically what we call now Republicans. Um, but they helped create this national party that got a lot of the progressive agenda accomplished. That's what I don't understand about the far right in the Republican Party is they don't understand that. They they don't get it. They they need to ally themselves with the rhinos and the moderates and people like me. They they need us. Um, they should be they should be encouraging us to join. Was it a matter of people say the base didn't come out, or is it a matter of there isn't really as much a base as they thought? Both. I think both. You have a shrinking base. Um, you know, of the Republican base is dying, literally dying. Um, you know, Not old. laughing at that. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're old. Yeah. They're dying. Um, I miss and, Webster. Yeah, right. Yeah. And um, and they didn't turn out. And when you start losing blue collar whites in Ohio, that's a sign that you're in trouble. And you could either say no, we're not, or you can say I guess we are. And and you got to figure it out. Look, it, look. If Hispanics don't like us for some or don't like Republican Party for some reason, um, that's a problem. It's not a problem that you can you can wish away. It seems that when most people move to America, they're more likely to move to a city. And it yeah. seems that Republicans are not communicating well with urban environments, with people of the cities. Is, is that a communication issue, or, or can they not express the issues to people in cities that would get them on board with yeah, I don't know. I even the smallest things they might agree with? I think it's weird. I think it's the, the Republican Party met platform and message should be really compatible with the kind of small businessmen and entrepreneurial activities you see in cities. The other problem, I guess, we have with, 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 with this particular uh, uh, candidate in 2012, guy smart, but it was all about starting businesses, and a lot of people don't want to start a business. They want to just work at a company and not, you know, feel like they're going to go under. Jobs are good. Jobs are good. Um, but I would say, you know, look, we have a problem, just, just take that one strand, problem with immigration. It's perceived. And, you know, they don't like us. They, you know, a lot of people don't like us. The Hispanics don't like us. There's a lot of Hispanics, and they're not, they're not shrinking, they're growing. And they all live in the cities. So how do you teach them without compromising your desire for border security, which is a perfectly legitimate thing, how do you, how do you win them over? Um, well, one thing you could do is you could open it. How much, how many, we spent how many billions of dollars on this ridiculous presidential campaign? Couldn't the Republicans take- I was just in the primary. Yeah, could you just take a, a half a billion and open up Republican Party English Language Institute, Republican Party Job Skills Institutes in, in Los Angeles and San Francisco and San Antonio and everywhere else, wherever they are, and for a buck a day, you teach English, and you do this and you do that. It's open 24 hours. And then people walk in, they see a picture of Ronald Reagan and the Republican Party, and they all open, and they think, oh, these people are helping me out. This is the party that helps me out. That's how we did it in the 19th century, in the early 20th century. You help people out. That's how you get immigrants to vote for you. Now, maybe it's old-fashioned, but old-fashioned kind of worked. And instead, we're too busy, I don't know, too busy, I mean, honestly, too busy listening to Rush Limbaugh. Um, very talented guy, very talented broadcaster. Has not run for anything. Run for something, I say to those guys. Just run for something. Run for sheriff of uh, Broward County. See how it goes. Do you need to get more Republican leadership in the cities? Would that be a nice start? Yeah, but yeah, that comes from the grassroots. First, forget about that. Just accomplish one thing. I had a friend um, who was, um, had to, when he was in high school, had the worst basketball team in the state, I think. It was like uh, in Missouri. And um, at one, one disastrous, disastrous game, Coach called a timeout, brought the team in. And said, "Look, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to get when you get possession of the ball. I want you to walk. I want you to dribble to the center court, center, and I want wherever you are. I want you to put the ball in the center. Just drop, put it on the ground, 
and I want you to run away from it. And they all were like, well, why tell us one of those? I just want to know that you can do one thing I tell you to do. Just do that one thing. Don't, don't do anything else. Just do that one thing. Keep I, it simple. Keep it simple. It. Just do that one thing. And I have a feeling that's what we should do. Let's just stop thinking about all this shit we want to do and just do this one little thing. Let's just, let's just instead of worrying about when we have a city councilman and where we're going to find that guy, let's just try to take back the cities in one small way. So is there a silver lining you see ahead besides Mitch McConnell's hairline? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we're, we're I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that we have to get on it. Republicans, anyway. I don't, I mean, I keep saying we because I, I usually vote for a Republican, but I don't give them any money because I, I love money. <laughs> my money. You got to buy cornflakes yeah, on Amazon. I love my money. I don't like to give it away. Um, I, I think we, uh, I think they, I think in general, those of us who, who are in favor of sort of more free market solutions, um, I have to get super honest about what's happening, what's happened in this country, not in the past five years, 10 years, 12 years, but the past 30 or 40 years. Um, since I picked the number in 1964, because that was a you know, watershed election. Uh, moving steadily left, faster or slower, depending on who's president, but moving steadily left in terms of socialism, European-style socialism, and taxes and big government. And um, we're losing. And we're not losing because we lost in 2012 or 2008. And we weren't winning when we won in 1980, 1984, 1988, and 2000 and 2004. We just were losing slower, um, and we kept we lost the thread of the conversation. Um, I mean, if you if you could go back, if you'd say you know wake up Ronald Reagan and say, hey, we passed socialized medicine in 2008, he would freak out. It would be inconceivable. What? What happened to you people? And we we did it. Um, and so I feel like that's that's we need to rethink that. And so all this other talk about all these other issues, um, you know, I dream of the day that, um, and maybe this is my own libertarian bias, but I dream of the day that we can really, we can really put on the top fifty things of our uh, of the, the, the plague our nation, uh, the the local the the local drama teacher and his boyfriend want to get married is a problem. That just is not a problem in this country. Um, what is a problem in this country is the local drama teacher and his boyfriend, when they get married, they, their, their retirement savings is worthless, and they, they want to start a small business that's overregulated, and there's no incentive for them to save, and all sorts of other problems. It's that my, a friend of mine who runs uh, um, Go Proud says uh, um, about gay marriage, he goes, yeah, I'm in favor of gay marriage, but in, um, in order to get married, you first have to have a date. In order to get a date, you first have to have a job. Um, that, let's just do that. Let's, let's recreate the entrepreneurial society we used to have and, um, and then see what happens 10 years from now. It seems that a lot of the Republicans now are focusing on the hot button issues and they get very exercised and very emotional about things and it seems there's a big picture that can be lost when they focus on the smaller problems. What do you make of what's happening in the news right now, whether it's the AP phone, te uh, phone release records or the IRS um, targeting Tea Party groups. Yeah, look, it's, it's great. I mean, it's fun. It's good. So finally, we're on. You know, we get. We, they, he looks nervous. Like this guy looks nervous. It's great. Well, fun Scandal to watch. makers. Oh yeah, it's great to watch. Like it's how exciting. Like I get to watch this guy who bugs the crap out of me. Looks scared. And Eric Holder is gonna get resign. It's fantastic. It's gonna be great. You know, it feels good, right? Because I hate him and I <laughs> make me mad. But on the other hand, what do we really want? It's not really gonna be present for that much longer. So what do we really want? Uh, I'd like to, uh, I want a Republican Senate, because the minute there's a Republican Senate in 2014, the 
Obama administration's over. It's over. He can just go home. I mean, this guy doesn't know how to compromise. He doesn't know how to, like, make deals. He's, he's, he's done, right? He's not Bill Clinton. He can't, you know, you take away you take away any any partners in Congress, he's done. Um, he, there's no such thing as a charm offensive for Barack Obama. He's not going to invite everybody over to yeah. have a barbecue, barbecue a lot of dinner. Dinners. Yeah, it's not going to happen. You know, he's not Bill Clinton. Um, so that that'd be great. And the other thing is, like, I don't, I think this is a perfect opportunity for uh, the people who are trying to undermine Obamacare. And our side in general, who don't like the IRS, to take to just to, you know to cut off the IRS at its knees. We should take Obamacare regulation away from the IRS. We should probably hobble it in a million different ways. We should probably have some kind of crippling, horrible oversight committee to kind of take them down a peg. We should use this opportunity if they've exposed their flank to really nail them. You know, we should do to the IRS what the Church Commission did to the CIA: basically destroy it. Um, that's a goal. That's a perfectly worthy goal. But sometimes our side just kind of wants to shake the pots and pans and bang the spoon on the high chair <laughs> and say, look, Obama's popularity is now at 33, yay! Yeah, yeah. And we don't really accomplish anything we really want. I mean, and then, then, then we think to ourselves, oh, and then we're going to be in the White House and then everything's going to be wonderful. But in fact, when we get in the White House, everything isn't wonderful because the American people still seem to like a high-tax, big-government solution. So we got to convince them they don't. Rob, I want to thank you very much for sharing all that with us. You can check out Rob's political prowess and other commentary on ricochet.com or Google search Martini Shot for his weekly commentary on KCRW. Rob, thank you for the uncommon knowledge. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Welcome back to the Hollywood Fringe Festival. I am here with director extraordinaire Nick Zayas, who is bringing to L.A. and to life Brilliant Traces by our favorite Cindy Lou. Johnson? Oh, there it is. Could have sworn it was Cindy Lou. Who? But while you're looking for Christmas, we found you Christmas in June. It is the best theater that's coming to town, the Fringe Festival, um, where you find the meatiest talent that I've ever seen. And uh, on stage and off the stage... And here's the man with the plan, the director, Dr. Nick Zayas. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me, Tom. Now, Nick, what made you want to do this play, Brilliant Traces, besides the flashes of brilliance you already trace in my life every day? Please tell me why you wanted Cindy Lou's words to be heard. <laughs> well, I think the play is definitely still relevant. I think it uh, it resonates with, with a lot of people because, uh, you know, at, at its core, I think it's really about uh, relationships, particularly people's relationships with their parents and and parents' relationships with their with their kids and you hear that mom yeah so uh and it's it's just a very touching very moving play and uh it's perfect absolutely perfect for both riley and clay who are the leads in in the production um so i think it was just uh, the perfect time to do it is there anything in particular that made you want to work with these two folks did you find them on the street or did you know them from the past what made you think they would bring this story to life yeah yeah i actually i did find them on the street uh clay clay happened to be mcclintock yeah clay clay was selling roses at the corner of, of <laughs> mcclintock and jefferson <laughs> and uh and and riley was uh purchasing the roses to uh 
she was buying the last name rose yeah no but uh we we all met during school and uh we've we've all worked together before in some capacity and right now we actually currently are all in the same comedy group um so uh that's funny yeah isn't it (laughs) isn't it um but uh yeah no uh we we really enjoy working together and uh i have i have great you know respect for both of their talents and there's just a lot of trust in our group so what was the biggest challenge you found bringing this play to life the biggest challenge was probably scheduling <laughs> literally it's impossible to get three people in a room together except for tonight all right well we're happy to have you guys i appreciate that and we're going to bring out the actors right now so nick thank you very much we'll check back in with you shortly i'm a man of my word and you're about to hear some great words right now we have brought to you on the casting couch wait what uh excuse me the cast is on a couch i'm so sorry everyone it's uh, riley rose critchlow and clay elliott they are a part of the los angeles hollywood fringe festival <laughs> and they're uh they're making it work making it work at the 916 north formosa all june long it's busting out all over you gotta see it could you in a nutshell i have a nut allergy tell me which is why i'm choking up here Tell me about Brilliant Traces and a bit about the plot. Sure, yeah. Uh, not to give anything away, but... Um, yes, what plot to wear. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, the, the basic premise is um, a woman, Rosanna Deleuze, shows up unannounced and unexpected at a cabin in Alaska where one Henry Harry lives, um, not expecting, not only not expecting her, but not expecting anyone. And this is like uh, <laughs> middle of nowhere Alaska style. Yeah, like, this is this isn't like Juno. This is like right. where that guy died in that movie. What's that movie? Mystery Alaska. That's not the one I was thinking, but I like that style. <laughs> you know the guy? Oh, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so it's in Alaska, um, and yeah, so these two characters are thrown together in the height of this snowstorm. If you like a good pathetic fallacy, and they are forced to confront each other with very different pasts and very different presents that they're living in in uh varying degrees of how they're dealing with a, a, a huge variety of common human issues uh that sort of come together and now understanding this play has some weighty issues going on in it apparently a little bit of both um could you tell me how you approach that how do you approach your inner demons while addressing the needs of serving this character's story I think it's important to start with how you do relate to it, what to confront your inner demons, as it were, because you can't really tell a story that is about something that you have any experience with without being able to deal with it yourself. I'm sure you've heard of and or seen many actors sort of go through therapy on stage, and that is not, to me, healthy or, or productive work at all. So it's important to really recognize, recognize yourself in the character and in the problems of the show and then recognize how you're different and sort of build upon it layer by layer to create this three-dimensional character that is obviously partially you and obviously partially not. So Clay, how did you go about that? You're a very fun, jovial person. How did you become the recluse in the woods? Um, well, I I don't think to be a recluse in the woods that you necessarily have to be anything but, you know, you can be anybody, I think, fun, jovial, or sad and depressed. I think um, the one thing that it drew, draws me to the show, one of the things that I love about the character and, and Riley's character for that matter is that they are so incredibly human um, I think that's one of the things that made it so it's accessible for us when we were taking on this project is is the fact that um, they're not that different 
um, and you can and I think they, through exploring the play you start to realize how um, just certain events and how it's kind of an avalanche effect and how little things that happen turn into big things turn into um, I mean in this case a s finding yourself in the middle of Alaska as a recluse you know um, which makes it both heartbreaking and uh, and I think very interesting to watch you guys started work on this play a little while back and you're bringing it back to Los Angeles what do you think are the benefits of taking a few months off a story, sitting with it, and then putting it up again? Well, one of the really great things has been because of the way that we all know, we all have worked together before, we all know the way we work, um, Nick has really brought a fresh approach this time about delving further into the specifics of our history within our own story. Um, because we've already done it, we've put it up, we know what the story is like, we know how it goes on stage. Now it's a matter of really like of of going into the depth of the history behind each character and just informing informing the story as a whole yeah. as you know as much as we possibly can. And I think uh, last time just putting on like it was the first time any of us or at least myself had been part of in independently producing a play and I, it, it became kind of a cluster F word. Of just of just like figuring out, I mean, just set all this stuff. And all it's stuff. figuring out the F word. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, cluster figuring out. And uh, yeah, thank you, Tom. Uh, I don't know why I couldn't say that. Um, so, but yeah, I think there were so many things that we had to consider as far as just the logistics of putting on a show. Um, I think all of us have the talent to be able to just kind of on surface level bring something that that's good and interesting. Um, but I think we all kind of walked away from the show, you know, at least myself, I could look, think back of moments or parts of the play where I'm like, oh God, you know, I wish I could have done that. Well, this is how I would have said that. And now I get that opportunity. So it's exciting. And I think uh, having all this time off um, allows it to settle and to attack it new. And I think it's been long enough um, that it will be fresh, but it hasn't been so long that we've forgotten where we started. So I think it's perfect. What makes the Hollywood Fringe Festival a worthy cause? It's the Hollywood Fringe Festival is absolutely awesome. It's been incredible working with all of these people. It's it's an opportunity for theater artists in LA to come together and cross promote, self promote, put up theater for you know a lower startup cost, be able to advertise, be able to get stories out there that you want told. Because a lot of the logistics, like we said, we're young, we don't have a lot of money to throw around. A lot of the stuff that ends up preventing people from putting on these stories that they care about is financial or you know getting audience involved, getting the word out. I mean, even when we did it last time, I, we, were bo we were all really proud of it. We, it was a beautiful production, but we didn't get the audience that we wanted to, um, which is it's fine. It's, very, it's, a, it's one of those stories you want even one person to hear, and that's satisfying. But specifically this time, we want to try to bring it, bring it to as many people as possible. So the Fringe is a perfect opportunity to do that. And I think in the city of, of industry, as it were, mm -hmm. I mean, I think we all came out. The coal here. industry? Yes, the coal, the coal mining industry <laughs> has transplanted from West Virginia to California recently. Um, I've yeah. been mining that for a while. Oh. <laughs> you got it. Uh, yeah, swish. Um, so yeah, I think it's. Um, see now my tr no. In this kind of the city where we, I think we all graduated and we were all kind of fed into this. Okay, we're gonna go into film, television. That's what actors in LA do. Um, and I think after time we start to miss the things about acting that originally got us in, which I think for the most I can say I think for the most of us was was theater. And it's a different ball game. And um, I think you you. You think that it's just not here, and I think the one wonderful thing about Hollywood Fringe is you have people, you just see how many people there are who really truly care about theater, which I think is so important, and uh, people who not only care to do it but are passionate about it, who love it, who live for it. Um, so I think you know I think there's over 200 shows to go see throughout Los Angeles throughout the month, and I think it's just a really awesome opportunity to uh, be reminded about where television film came from, 
which was this kind of art of theater. Um, and there's nothing like live theater. So you say there are over 200 shows. There's only one people should care about. You got that right. Brilliant Traces. Oh, fallen one. And it's by... <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to cut to the deets and dates right now. We're going to bring director Zayas back in here. Nick, could you please tell everyone how they can see this amazing production that you guys have sweated and uh, bled over? And I mean that. That's all on stage, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I actually did bleed on the stage. We were moving a flat, and I <laughs> snagged myself on a nail. So that's that's very true. Nailed but, uh, it. <laughs> all right. So, Nick, please give us the dirty deets. Yeah. So um, if you want to see the show, which you should, um, my, my best recommendation is that you come one of our two preview nights. Uh, and the reason for that is we really want to pack our preview nights in, and uh, we're offering a special deal where you can actually pay what you can. And that's going to be happening uh, Friday, June 7th at 10 p.m. And then Saturday, June 8th at 5.30 p.m. So uh, the way you can do, the way you can get your pay what you can tickets is by going to hollywoodfringe.org and then uh, look up our show, Brilliant Traces. It should pull it right up. And then on the right side of our page, there will be a link that says buy tickets. You click the link that says buy tickets and scroll down to one of those first two preview shows and uh, there should be an option at some point where you can enter a promotional code and uh, the code you want to enter to be able to pay what you can is Tom Polos is the man. All one word. I'm honored. <laughs> but seriously, guys, so log on to that website, log in that code, and you'll be able to see this amazing production of Brilliant Traces directed by Nick Zayas, starring Clay Elliott and Riley Rose Critchlow. I don't know if it had to be in that order, but you need to see this play. You need to get online. You need to get your tickets now. It's playing throughout June, throughout Hollywood. Go see it. We would love to see you there. All right, I want to thank all three of you for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. And your listeners. Of course. And, um... We'll be checking you out very shortly. All right, that's our program. We want to thank you so much for checking us out. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Hey, guy from the apartment complex, what's cooking? Uh, nothing much. Just you know, walking home from the grocery store. I got I got a weird look when I was buying all these groceries. What did you buy anything in particular that was disturbing or weird or off-putting? Well, I I, I bought four bananas, three almond joys, two popsicles, and I like broke the popsicles off the pack, but I think it's fine. I guess it it's got to be. Made. I I mean I paid with this five dollar bill that had a dinosaur I had drawn on in Abraham Lincoln's face that said savages. Are you right? a $5 bill. So are you writing on your currency a lot now? Yeah. Yeah. It's what I'm doing. Anybody out there, if you see any currency that has a different character screaming savages, that's from me. Is, is there a way we can track it? Like, wasn't there a dollar bill tracking website? Where's George? Where's George? Yeah. But this is different. I just want, I want to, Spread the word that I am out there writing savages on dollar bills. And it's technically not defacing. Is this just artistic expression? You're not going to get in trouble for this, right? I think it is defacing, but sometimes you like buy things and people are like, oh, it's on the dollar bill. I have to say, crazy people. <laughs> but I, I did this Starbucks more than once, and they were like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're aware of your savage garden. Your, your money is growing on trees. Yeah. And... 
Um, I like where that's going. Now, with with money, are you writing anything else? Are you just drawing dinosaurs and? I, I draw I draw different things. Like I. I but the through line is, but the through line is savages. Savages. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of money, what do you make of? all these kickstarter campaigns you know what kickstarter is yeah yeah you know i i saw everybody just like popping up with projects yeah so i i thought i I want some money so what what's the can you just for our listeners give the backstory of what kickstarter actually is so kickstarter is a a website on the world wide web thank you al gore uh thank you al gore uh a website on the world wide web where you can start you can kickstart an artistic project no an artistic project uh, into fruition so you can raise money it's fundraising yeah like for if you're starting to make a small movie or a book or a pilot anything like that what what painting perhaps Any, it could be anything and i i really want a hairless cat oh you've talked about this in the program before you like hairless cats i love hairless cats are the best cats and, and they're not savages by any means not savages they're they're noble cats yes but they're very expensive they are beyond my means but <laughs> guys from the apartment complex we're here to help thank you thank you and i, I just today because i thought i might be here and i could plug my kickstarter i went on kickstarter to start my kickstarter to kickstart my program <laughs> that sounds like a good way to kickstart it to uh have a hairless cat I just needed like a thousand dollars. I would pay two hundred dollars, twelve hundred dollars altogether. I'd pay the two hundred dollars. I found these fabulous kittens. A tiara comes with each kitten. Wow! And I would send that tiara to whoever gave me the most money to get a hairless <laughs> cat. I like where this is going. Alas, Kickstarter said this was not an artistic project. That's criminal. They don't just fund me getting a cat. But what does Kickstarter have to do with it? Do they have to match what you what you bring in? I don't know. Why do they get to deem what's an artistic project? I don't know. Is there any way we can email them? Can we get... Have you ever heard of the Twitter handle Brittle Caesars? I have. Maybe we could badger Kickstarter's handle with Brittle Caesars. Although that's not really Brittle Caesars' thing. Uh, You know, Brittle Caesars, he's got time. If he's hot and ready to do it. Yeah. He's hot hot to trot. Yeah. (laughs) So how can we get around this? Is there any way we can get money for you to get a hairless cat? Perhaps money even that has the word savages written on it? Well, there are other websites, but the cachet of Kickstarter was really what I was going for. Did you mean to say cachet? <laughs> I choose my words carefully, Tom. Polis. Oh, thank you. TPOTP, ladies and gentlemen. Speaking of chosen words, guy from the apartment complex, oft known for his puns. Oh. Can you please kickstart us up with some delicious and nutritious puns? Well, for those of you who have not been paying attention to social media... Uh, you may have what missed... What about unsocial media? I, I think that's your favorite. You may have missed that it has been Huey Lewis in the News month <gasps> on my Twitter. Oh, wow. I love Huey Lewis in the News. So any single day of the month, name a date, and I will tell you the pun I made on that date in March. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's go with um, March 5th. March 5th. That would have been... Uh... Huey just announced his summer tour in Virginia on his website on July 8th. Be sure to check out Huey Lewis and the news in Newport News, as reported by the news. <laughs> I believe in love. I believe in that. I believe in that pun. Do you got another one for us? How about March 9th? Oh, oh, this is, this is a classic. Huey's backup band is all gastropod mollusks now. 
So he had to change the name to Huey Lewis and the Nuda Bronx. Now, are people drawn to these? Is there a way we can get Huey on board? Well, people really love them so much they feel that the like button doesn't adequately express how good it is, so they don't touch the like button because it would diminish their love. We've all been there. Yeah. Can you give us one more, please? I mean, I've heard Star Wars is coming out with a you know a bunch of new films. Is there any way you can combine Huey Lewis and Star Wars for oh. the nerds out there? Oh, yeah. Well, there's yes, there's a, um, a reboot coming up. And in the cantina scene, there was a famous band playing. And they're going to have a new band, uh, Chewy Lewis and the News. <laughs> All right, that's our program. We want to thank you so much for checking us out. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We want to take this moment to thank our guests. Thanks to Rob Long, the cast and director of Brilliant Traces, guy from the apartment complex. Special thanks to Sammy J for the rhythms. Thanks to Bob, as always. Thank you, Trent. You'll see us next time, or you'll hear us next time, on TP with TP. That's the podcast with Tom Polos. There's always more at thepolosgrounds.com. Happy New Year's. <laughs>